Sports MedCast, brought to you by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and supported by the British Journal of Sports Medicine. My name is Dr. Scott Young, and I am the host of today's episode. Here at the Sports MedCast, we look to get the answers you need from the subject matter experts on critical topics in sports medicine, stuff that you can implement immediately in the clinic, the training room, or on the pitch. Uh, This episode is certainly no different. Today, we'll be discussing shoulder dislocations with two of the best in the field. First, we have Dr. John Tokish, who is full professor at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, subspecialty trained in orthopedics sports medicine, and former chief of sports medicine, the United States Air Force Academy. We also have Dr. John Wilkins, associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the John Hopkins School of Medicine and team physician for the United States Naval Academy. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's just get right to it. Uh, I'm going to start by Dr. Wilkins. I've got a question for you here. Let's say you have an athlete that presents to you on the sidelines with an acute shoulder dislocation. This is a first dislocation for them. How do you evaluate this patient on the sidelines, and what are some things that you're looking for? I think the immediate thing would try to get your arm up underneath the shoulder pads. It's hard to take those off on the field and, and see if you can palpate a step off over the lateral chromium. That's the most obvious thing you'll see with an anterior shoulder dislocation. And your differential would be an AC separation, which could present with some type of step off or a clavicle fracture, which also would pre- present with some type of deformity. But uh, it's pretty obvious uh, if you have a shoulder dislocation, you reach up underneath there and you feel the lateral chromium, and then you palpate down, you'll, you'll find that there's a little hollow there. And if you palpate anteriorly, you feel a humeral head. So that's be my first uh, thing I would do. If you're walking them to the sideline, you can try to have the athlete relax and talk to him, try to distract them and have some gravity I'll pull on his uh, on his humerus. And with time, a lot of times, that will self-relocate right there as you're walking off the field. If I get to the sideline and if it's not reduced, I try not to reduce it on the sideline. One, there's too many things going on. Sometimes there's TV coverage. So then I would walk them to the, to the training room and do a formal reduction there. That's a great point, actually, um, taking them off the side of the field to do, uh, to do your reduction. And then if you end up taking them off the field, what are some of the reduction techniques that you'd like to use or that you found the most effective? Yeah, there's a lot of printed reduction techniques, and all of them work great. I think the really the, the key would be to unlock the hill sac lesion. So when you dislocate anteriorly, the humeral head will jump out, and that will create a hill sac lesion in the posterior aspect of the humerus. And, and literally, the, the humerus head is embedded into the anterior glenoid. Until you relax that, you're not going to reduce it at least with anything that's gentle. If you get the athlete to uh, relax and release some of the strain and spasm in his shoulder and put some gentle traction on that and unlock that, you can actually feel that disengage, and then you just do some gentle abduction, external rotation. It should should pop right back. And there's a lot of maneuvers described to do that. All of them employ the same techniques of muscle relaxation, disengage the hill sex lesion, then some abduction, extra rotation, and it should reduce it. It really does want to go back in place once you get the, the hill sex disengaged. So I use my technique would be have the athlete lay down so he is comfortable, talk to him, um, pull some inline traction to the shoulder, and then once you feel that the hill sex disengaged and then just some gentle abduction, 
extra rotation. And you can usually do this in a training room. You don't need IV sedation. You may not need intraarticular lidocaine. That's great. And do you, are there any techniques other than the, the old classic foot in the armpit technique, are there any other techniques you recommend avoiding, stuff that doesn't work or stuff that could potentially be harmful? Again, I think you have to talk to the, to the athlete. I think if you get them relaxed, um, you can just juice, juice gentle traction. You don't have to put any counterforce on that. Just his weight on the table should be enough. I actually sit down in a rolling stool uh, just so I can sit there and, and I'm relaxed and just pull some gentle traction. And as you, sometimes you can massage your shoulder, and that can release some of the deltoid and the pec muscles that are, might be in spasm. And then just once, you, once it's disengaged, it's just a very, very gentle abduction. It usually takes just a couple minutes for that to pop back in. That's great. Uh, Dr. Tokish, I'm going to throw it over to you now. Let's say we get this patient reduced, and they present to your clinic the next day. What do we do now? What are, what are some of the things that you're looking for? What imaging studies are you looking to get? How do you manage this patient? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the first-time dislocator is one of the most, uh, remains one of the most controversial and really data-driven uh, parts of the dislocated shoulder in uh, the world of sports medicine. So I think uh, it, it is particular, it's kind of um, apropos that Dr. Wilkins and myself may be on this protocol because the, uh, a lot of this work has been done uh, in the U.S. military and, and on the sidelines with uh, especially West Point, Annapolis, and, uh, and uh, the Air Force Academy. So I will tell you that there, there are a couple of priorities and some things that you don't want to miss. So the first thing that we want to make sure of is we're not missing a fracture. So we've got to make sure that the shoulder is reduced, and we've got to make sure that we don't have a big fracture in there uh, before we have a discussion about what the athlete's options are. And uh, the x-rays are, are done, and I, and I will say I think one of the most helpful keys on the x-ray is you've got to make sure that you get some sort of axillary view. A lot of times they'll say, oh, the patient's in too much pain, et cetera, but I'm going to say, as my old coach at the academy used to say, 99 times out of 10, you can get the appropriate x-ray with an axillary view. <laughs> and the reason that's so important is that if you don't get uh, exactly the right view, that shoulder can be a little bit dislocated. The, the literature is replete as our personal experiences with missed dislocations, which is one of the things that we just definitely want to miss. Even a scapular Y view, which is what some people will use with this, can be a little bit rotationally off and can, and can uh, uh, take you down a false trail. So a good axillary view to make sure that the shoulder is reduced. Another sort of secondary uh, code with that uh, that can help you is make sure that the patient has a gentle range of motion that they um, can go through that doesn't have a block or doesn't have any uh, major pain with it, and that's a good clue. But that axillary view is critical. Now then, if you do see a fracture, and uh, John talked about the, uh, the Hill-Sachs lesion, which is very common in these patients, so uh, we want to watch for that, but we also want to see if there is a uh, bony Bankart lesion in these patients. I think um, most of us get advanced imaging almost routinely uh, because we're going to help uh, an athlete make a decision, uh, and so we want to know if there's bone loss or how much uh, bony involvement there may be, as well as associated pathology. So the first thing you'd want to do is if you see any, any signs of bony pathology, large bony bank heart, greater tuberosity fracture, large hill sacs, then you definitely want to consider more advanced imaging. The next thing you want to definitely make sure is that they're neurologically intact. It's rare to see an anterior dislocation have an axillary nerve palsy or a musculocutaneous nerve palsy. 
but I've seen it, and I'm sure those with, uh, with experience can speak to this, and that's one of those things we definitely don't want to miss. Assuming that now that shoulder is intact neurologically and that there's no fracture or no contraindication, well, then we've got quite a discussion to have. There are those, I will tell you, in a poll that I did with uh, uh, over in Europe, I will tell you that almost every European surgeon, at least in that informal poll of shoulder surgeons there, would say that patient is done and we should fix them right away. An American audience would say, listen, it's probably okay that we let them try to play throughout the season and then have a discussion to go forward with. So that is one of those areas that's, uh, that's of huge controversy. And some of the great work by, uh, by Dan Buss at, in Minnesota and then by John Dickens with a, a combined study of the three military academies looked at this and say that if the patient does decide to try to play, most of them, number one, will be successful at being get, able to get back to play. And number two, will likely come out or had additional instability episodes during that season. So that's something you have to counsel them about. But many will try to play over the course of the rest of that season, and then you can have that discussion at season's end. I think it is important, uh, just in closing with this one, to say that before you release them back to play, this is a team sport, so therefore it's a team decision. And that means that that patient should be only back when they've regained reasonable full motion with no apprehension, good protective strength, and not just single strength, but also fatigue loading strength, huh? and the ability to uh, obtain those motions and those strength positions in positions of function. So as orthopedic surgeons, for example, we don't spend enough time to really get to the bottom of that. And I think that's why we rely so heavily on our therapists and especially that athletic trainer to progress that patient back fairly quickly. In the Dickens study, those patients often got back within a week after that dislocation and they could regain that. But that doesn't mean that that's true for all patients. So we have to individualize this uh, very carefully. And again, that, that needs to be a shared responsibility between the confidence of the athlete as well as the expertise and, and uh, uh, workings of our trainers. That's great, Dr. Tokish. That is a ton of awesome information. I'm going to break it down just a little bit because I had a couple of questions in there. One of the first things you said was doing a gentle range of motion during your exam. I think a lot of folks are really hesitant to take somebody who's 24, 48, maybe even 72, is out, 72 hours out from a dislocation and put them through a range of motion. So my question to you is, how much of a range of motion are you doing? What are your sort of left and right limits on that exam? That's a, that's a great question. The, the gold standard for us in terms of apprehension, right, is, or in terms of instability is an apprehension sign. And Rich Hawkins, who taught me everything I know about uh, shoulder surgery, would tell you that, th that the patient becomes apprehensive when you move them, meaning they flinch or they get nervous about it coming out. But sometimes the doctor becomes apprehensive, and both should be considered sure. a positive sign, right? So that, I think okay. those are both reasonable things. So what I would tell you is most of these patients dislocate in, in an, a relative abduction and external rotated position. So when you're checking to see if that patient's got reasonable range of motion, just do it down in the adducted, the adducted position, and you can go from belly to approximately 30 to 40 degrees of external rotation with the arm at the side. And if that's smooth in terms of that range of motion, that's a pretty good secondary check that the patient is intact. Because if you've got an engaging hill sacs or a shoulder that is out of joint, they, they're not going to be able to get that. That ends up being about 120 degrees of uh, arc of motion. That's fantastic. 
my second question for you was, you were talking about the imaging and making the decision to move on to an advanced imaging study, and you mentioned some different bony findings, the bank art, et cetera. Do you feel like the x-ray, a plain film, is sensitive enough to find those bony issues that would lead you to the next test, or are there times that you're just going to go to the next study because you're, you assume something's there or you're not sure, or et cetera? I think that's also a great question. And the, uh, there are those that would argue very strongly that, uh, that if you get the appropriate x-rays, right, now we're not talking about just a, a standard set, but if you're talking about a Bergino view that is less familiar to our audience, a West Point axillary view, which is uh, a little bit more familiar, and then, uh, you know, the, a specific set of those x-rays by a radiology tech that you know and trust, I think that, that's, that's fine. But unfortunately, for many of us in our practices, they may be getting x-rays at a number of different locations out there. The protocols are not standardized, et cetera. So my point would be is that you not, you, there's only one sin to commit here, and that's to miss it. Most of us would say, and I would say in my practice, 100% of patients with shoulder instability get an advanced imaging study. For me, it's MRI. Others would use CT. So I would, as, uh, as many of our uh, audience members here will be um, primary care sports trained folks, I would say don't ever worry about getting an advanced imaging study for, um, for a shoulder that's dislocated. It's, it's very helpful for us, even if you're going to refer it on to the orthopedic surgeon. And, and if you're not going to refer it on, then it can help you understand how extensive is this labral lesion, whether or not they have bone loss. And I think gives not only the physician, the treating physician, but also the patient as well as their family, a lot of confidence that things are okay to proceed and try. Gotcha. Perfect. Well, Dr. Wilkins, I kind of want to get your view. Dr. Tokish talked a little bit about some of the in-season dislocator issues and the discussions that you have to have with the athlete in terms of trying to return to play versus going to the operating room, et cetera. I wanted to get your view on that, but I was also curious about bracing and how you feel like bracing plays in here. And if we can brace some of these athletes, and if so, what kind of racing should we be using? Yeah, I, I think uh, JT brought up some very good points. The first thing you have to do is sit down with the athlete. And again, the more information you have, the better the discussion. So advanced imaging does does help when you're trying to, if you have some significant bone loss or engaging hill sacs lesion, it's a little bit different discussion if the, if the x-rays and the MRI are relatively normal, which is pretty rare. But uh, if it's a first-time dislocator, there's a lot of discussion because the options really are rehab them, get a full range of motion or protective range of motion, let them go back to play, or talk about surgical options. Because for young collision athletes, the recurrence rate is pretty high. If, it, if someone has had a multiple dislocations or this is not his first-time dislocation, the discussion may be a little bit more relaxed. If this has happened before, uh, the discussion is, can he return to play and be effective? I think the literature is pretty clear, is becoming more clear. Um, the less bone loss you have and the less previous dislocations you have, the better your surgical result. And to let somebody re-dislocate a dozen times is probably not in the athlete's best interest. Some of it's driven by position. Um, obviously, if it's your throwing shoulder and a quarterback, uh, that's a different discussion than if it's your down lineman. Typically, these are on your defensive side of the line or a wide receiver, and sometimes you can brace them, and there's a multitude of braces out there. Some of them are static restraints where you actually tie the shoulder in and 
do not allow abduction or external rotation, or you can actually have a brace that allows you to dial in to a point where they have apprehension or instability, and you can control some of their abduction external rotation. Other braces, what they do is they actually, as you lift and abduct and external rota rotate your arm, you're actually activating the rotator cuff, which is your dynamic stabilizer of the shoulder. So as you fight against the brace, your rotator cuff begins to activate and provide some dynamic stability to the shoulder. All those braces are good for some of your unskilled positions, maybe some of your tackling positions, but for someone who has to reach overhead, um, it's really hard to, to give you a full range of motion unrestricted by bracing. I think for a brace to work, it does capture some of the shoulder motion, so there'll be some restriction in its ability to play, but you may sacrifice some of that position for stability. So that's a discussion you have with the athlete. Obviously, you have to play, you have to practice in it before you can play in it. So there are a couple options out there as far as different braces. You can sit down with an athlete, the position coach, and see if there's one of those that might work. And not one works for everybody. So I, mean, I think you have to kind of be familiar with two or three different braces and, and, and have that available and, and have the athlete. And even a good ace wrap or tape drop will be helpful. Some athletic trainers can do a very nice job to reproduce some of the effects of bracing with just a with their own techniques of taping and break, uh, wrapping with ace wrap. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Tokish, to take it back to the surgical perspective, and I know we touched on this a little bit, but can you talk to us a little bit about the non-operative instability severity score and how you utilize that? Sure. So I think all of us face this dilemma, right? We have this 16-year-old or 17-year-old high school scholastic athlete who shows up in your clinic and who has had this dislocation, and maybe they've made it through the season, and now we have to have this discussion with them. Okay, season's over, and should we now fix you, or should we let you, because you sort of made it through the season, should we let you go? And what are the risks of each of those things? And so we wanted to look at that. We were blessed uh, at the Stephen Hawkins Clinic where I uh, uh, was, where we had 53 schools in our uh, school district, and we had trainers that were employees of our system at all of them. So it allowed us to, cre uh, to create a huge database in this regard. And this was an, uh, a question that Ellen Shanley, who was our lead on this, and I really wanted to answer. And so what we did was we took a look at all the patients who suffered anterior instability, and then we followed them. And what was really surprising to me, maybe this is the arrogance of a surgeon, but I would have told you that most of those patients ended up in a surgeon's office and we fixed them because we know that the rate of re-dislocation with non-operative management, at least in, in the literature, is very high. So I would have told you, okay, all those patients are going to, those that try are going to fail and they'll end up in a surgeon's office. Well, I was wrong. In fact, the vast majority of the patients that were seen never got to the surgeon in, in, our, in our county school district. And most of them were fairly successful in terms of getting back to sport. It was a little bit of a paradigm shifter for me. So we said, okay, well, then let's figure out who does fail non-operative treatment. And what we found was, was that there are several predictors that will help decide who goes back to, to uh, play and completes an entire next season without any shoulder trouble versus those that do not. And what we found was, was that, Age is certainly a predictor, but in this case, most of us feel or most of us have said that younger age means more instability, but actually in this cohort, older scholastic athletes, so your juniors and seniors as opposed to your ninth graders, 
uh, were much more likely to, uh, to re-dislocate. So age was actually helpful, younger age in this one. The other big one was type of instability. So one of the things that becomes really important is, is this patient a subluxer or are they a dislocator? And I think work by Dickens and the, and the guys out of West Point have really helped us understand that a, that subluxer may be a different animal than the dislocator. And in our, in our work, it was absolutely a predictor at who was successful as opposed to those that were not. So did it have to be reduced or did it spontaneously reduce without anything else? We've talked about bone loss tonight. That's obviously critical with that. And, and, and much more than any bone loss is probably too much. And then we took a look at competitive athletes and contact athletes, and we came up with a 10-point score. Uh, we're about to, to present that work, and what we found was was that this non-operative instability severity score, the nicest score, if you will, was very successful. We could predict with 90% accuracy who was going to come out versus who couldn't uh, or who would be able to play. So pretty exciting on the frontier, but I think for our audience uh, tonight, I would tell you that non-operative management in these patients actually may well lead to athletes who are able to successfully complete that next season. They may have a subsequent instability episode, a subluxation, et cetera, but many of those will stabilize after a single episode. So uh, I know that may sound strange coming from a surgeon that a trial of non-operative management might be okay, but that's what our data shows. That's great. And do you envision this score being utilized by non-operative providers like myself to help determine whether we should send a patient to a surgeon for evaluation, or is this a tool for a surgeon who's trying to take, decide whether or not to take a patient to the operating room or for both? Well, our, our, our N is pretty high, but it's, it's only based upon about 100 patients and instability uh, patients in this cohort, so we definitely need larger numbers and longer-term follow-up. And there's some weaknesses to our study, so I, I don't know that it's ready to be thrown out there for everyone to use as dogma yet. I think really, like any study that, uh, that we hope for, it ends up asking more questions than it answers. And I think one of the questions is, is we've, we all have this dogma that non-operative management is going to be a, a really high, unacceptable level of failure, et cetera. And therefore, uh, many of us, and I'm one of the ones who have been very vocal about this, saying, look, a first-time dislocator, I fix. As to your question, I think if the numbers prove out, and, and at least so far they are, then there will be a very simple checklist that will allow you to ask five categories and will be able to help you predict with your patient which patients need to be referred and which don't. And I think the, the primary care sports medicine physician, the athletic trainer, and the surgeon can kind of come to a, a decision. All three may be able to use these predictors. Oh, that's fantastic. That's super exciting. We definitely are looking forward to seeing that presented. So along the surgical lines, Dr. Wilkins, let's say we've taken, decided we're going to take this patient to the operating room. What makes you decide whether you're going to do an open procedure or arthroscopy? I'm a training area where we typically always did open procedures, and we were pretty happy with our results. So I, I've, that has always is my, been my first line. I think there are some very good arthroscopic techniques. I, I think if it's a first-time dislocator, no bone loss, non-collision athlete, um, I think arthroscopic procedure is, is very effective and excellent. I think well-trained arthroscopic uh, surgeons can do this. If you look at our cohort of surgeons coming out of training, probably more of them have been trained with arthroscopic techniques and open techniques, so they probably are feeling more comfortable. I do think there is a, still a role for an open uh, reconstruction, and that would be, a, one, a multiple dislocator failed arthroscopic procedure and probably uh, a collision athlete that's younger 
those would be one I would really think long and hard and talk to them about the uh, the results of open versus arthroscopic, and that would probably be the one population that I would lean towards an uh, open bank card repair versus an arthroscopic, just because I think the literature is a little bit supportive of an uh, open procedure in that group. Gotcha. Well, let's say we've done a surgical procedure on this patient, and the next step, of course, is rehab. I'm curious, have you guys seen uh, mistakes that are commonly made or things that you've learned over the years of doing this from a rehab perspective that you can pass on to the rest of us, lessons learned, things that work well, things that don't, that sort of thing? My experience is that uh, we tend to let the kids go back too soon to return to play. I think it's probably at least a six-month recovery, and and there may be some reasons to let them go back a four months, but that should be pretty rare. I think kids feel pretty good after a stabilization procedure, and and I think it takes a pretty pretty long time to get that shoulder just much like it would be an ACL or a Tommy John for the elbow. It's, it's not a two or three or four month recovery. I think it's a six month recovery. I think there's a fair amount of rehab associated with it. I, I think that your your uh, physical therapists and athletic trainers are a big part of the recovery. And I think if, if, if I failed, it's letting kids go back too soon. After surgical reconstruction, I, I think we tend to try to get kids back on the field sooner than later. Unfortunately, you, know, you you have to give up a season if you have a high school athlete or a college athlete. You have to give up six months, and that maybe even the discussion goes back to the first time dislocation. That you no, know, if it's an underclassman, they dislocate during the season. Maybe he gets the first he gets the surgery first time dislocator because he can recover and be available for spring ball. And the following season versus a, a senior athlete or one of your um, marquee athletes or franchise athletes where you, know, you may, you know, not operate until it's absolutely clearly indicated that he needs the surgery for, for stability. I, I think my mistakes in my, my career have been I've let athletes go back too soon. And I think six months has been kind of where I've felt pretty comfortable. Not everyone is ready at six months, but most people are with a good rehabilitation program. And do you feel that for a high school athlete who is getting some rehab but is also in school and doing all that other stuff versus a pro athlete who pretty much their job is being taken care of so they can get back in the game, does that change the period of time enough to matter or is it still sort of that general six months approach? I still think it's six months. I think the kids that are younger heal a little bit better than some of your professional athletes. I just think sometimes those high school kids are playing two or three sports so if he dislocates playing football, he may not be available for basketball. He may you know, bump into his lacrosse or baseball season. So right. I think there's probably some other things that compete for the timing. But that that's a discussion. When you start talking about surgery, you talk about the rehabilitation and return to play. And it's uh, that will drive some of that. And some of that discussion I have with the athlete and the parents, but also I have with the position coach or the head coach, particularly with underclassmen, that you know, it might be better to miss – his sophomore year, so he's available for his junior and senior year. So there's some there's some conversation that shared responsibility of when the best time to do the surgery is, because uh, you really want it to be the only surgery. You just really don't want to do a, a second operation. So you want to um, maximize um, the results from your surgery. So you don't want to shortchange your your surgical outcomes by going back too soon or not doing a full rehab. I think well, I, I might just add to that. One of the things that John brings up that's so important is you hear him 
as he talks you through those things, how many little places on the algorithm in his own mind he has to go down. And so I think one of the real key points about postoperative rehab is individualization. You heard him teach us about the importance of understanding, is this a young high school kid or is this a pro kid? Is this a guy with eligibility left or is it not? Uh, you know, you want to know what position they are. For example, the, the non-dominant arm of a college linebacker is a different animal than the throwing arm of a pitcher in terms of rehab and, and the priority you place on range of motion, et cetera. I think John's exactly right, too, that we have to be careful about not moving these guys too quickly. But it's also important to note that, remember, stability of the shoulder is not just a ligamentous thing. It's ligaments for static stability, but it's the cuff and the periscapular muscles for dynamic stability. And so it's very important that, again, another, another uh, plea for this to be a team sport in the sense that when John and I take a patient to surgery, we'll get the ligament put back where the good Lord put it in the first place. But getting those muscles available, firing in rhythm and firing correctly to dynamically stabilize the arm doesn't just happen. It's not a passive process. It requires quite a bit of work on the athlete's part and a trained eye and, um, and hands of a physical therapist and, a, and an athletic trainer so that by the time our stuff heals, we got to get that, that athlete back to ensure that their dynamic stabilizers are right in line. So individualization, I do think it's possible to protect a patient, which is, uh, which is critical, at the same time mobilizing them. So I'll give you an example. One of the questions that we have to ask in post-op rehab is, was it open or arthroscopic? So in an open procedure, many take down the subscapularis. Well, you do not want a subscapularis failure after an open procedure. So most would slow that rehab down quite a ways to protect that repair. Whereas in an arthroscopic procedure, because you don't take down the subscapularis, you are uh, not bound by that. I think you can do some strengthening early as long as it's isometric and especially some of the scapular stuff just to engage the scapula as we go forward. So bottom lines for me on, on this are individualization, know who the athlete is, when the athlete is, what their goals are in terms of when they're getting back this season and what their future career holds. And then you need to be able to consider protection utmost as well as mobilization so that they don't get stuck with atrophy and a loss of scapular rhythm as you go forward. That's great. Well, I want to use sort of the rehab setup here to channel into our last question. In these last couple minutes, you guys have both collectively seen thousands of these cases over the years. What can you tell us about long-term results, stuff that we could use when we're talking to these patients tomorrow or the next day in the clinic or the training room? I've been pretty happy with at least the first-time dislocator. I, I still feel comfortable with my child to do a, a period of non-operative treatment. I think there's still some role to that. I think now with some of the literature that we have, that there is bone loss or big engaging heel sac lesion, that conversation may lean you more towards surgery than not a first-time dislocator. After you've had several dislocations, I think it becomes pretty clear that surgery is uh, an option. And I think if you're younger, collision sport, I I'd probably lean towards an uh, open versus an arthroscopic. I've been pretty happy with both, and, and I think I, I, I've respected the rehab more and more. I've been happy with our results. That it's, it's never zero. I think there's probably still a, somewhere between a 5 and 10% failure rate, even if everything's done right. I think that's um, because the kids go back into the battle and, and fray, and they can dislocate it. You kind of want to get them to the point where at least it 
redislocation rate of his operative shoulder or his injured shoulder is equal to the opposite side, but it's never zero. Um, and that's probably a conversation to have with the, with the parent and the kid and the coach. But I, I think we've kind of given them somewhere around 90% success rate. And if it's a failed operative shoulder, it, it's a different discussion. Again, I think if it's you're taking care of high school or college athletes, it's a little bit different than if you're taking care of a professional athlete. We, we've, I think we've done a good job. I think the literature is helping us more and more to try to identify those kids earlier than later who would benefit from surgery, and I think that has made a big difference. We have not seen the horrible shoulders from surgery or from repeat dislocations that we see with an ACL deficiency that's been neglected. I think the, probably the one technique or one uh, thing that has made some bad results would be an indwelling catheter with a pain for pain management with some um, lidocaine or dupivacaine that might uh, provide some post-op pain relief that has been fraught with chondrolysis and poor outcomes. But outside of that, I think a well-done surgical procedure has a pretty good track record, but it's not zero. That's great. Yeah, I might add with, uh, with long-term results, I think the the things that uh, that I have learned are that we have to be careful about how we evaluate what success means. So traditionally, certainly in the surgical literature, success and failure has often been decided or determined based upon whether you redislocate it or not. And what we've learned in a, a military population as well as an athletic population is many of the patients who don't redislocate still scored low on their functional outcome scores. So these were copers, if you will. So so you go and you take care of a ranger battalion, for example, and you go out and you say, did you dislocate it? And they say, no, sir. And then you say, how's your shoulder? Well, sir, it's not very good. So you have to be very careful right. that, to understand that, um, that redislocation, a stable shoulder doesn't necessarily mean an optimized one. And I think there's several long-term studies that have borne that out. So even in patients who are who are coping, so, so to speak, we just have to be careful that you ask them the questions about what their job requires, what their avocations and their hobbies require to make sure that you optimize that patient, uh, that patient's outcome uh, overall. The other thing I would tell you is, is that it's, it's okay to manage them non-operatively, but multiple recurrences we, sh we need to be careful with as well. We don't know how many. I, I love a comment by Jack Houston, who's a legend in sports medicine. They used to say, well, when would you fix it? And he said, well, I would fix it after the first time they dislocate, but before the second. Right, so the subtlety is there. We don't know when the second one is, but sometime in that space. So multiple recurrences should not be tolerated, right? But more dislocations mean more bone loss. And, and when you have an athlete, I, I know John could speak to this as well, a shoulder that has no bone loss that we go in and fix is an entirely different animal than a shoulder who has significant bone loss that we go in and fix. The, the redislocation rates are higher. The outcome scores are lower. Their ability to return to sport is lower. So if, a, if an athlete wants to try this, it's okay to try it non-operatively, but we've got to keep a close eye on those folks to make sure that they return to both optimal function and that they don't, aren't tolerating multiple recurrences. Well, Dr. Tokish, Dr. Wilkins, this has been great. I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. There's been lots of great info discussed here, stuff that we can immediately implement in our practice tomorrow. Thank you for all of that, and thank you for everybody who's listening for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time on the Sports Bedcast.